If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 17, we're going to be looking uh, this morning at verses 20 to 23. I learned a lesson uh, in France some years ago. If you're out for a meal in France and you see on the menu horseradish or radish salad, You might think to yourself, oh, I like radishes. What could be nicer than a plate of radish salad with those little radishes and maybe surrounded by lettuce uh, and, uh, you know, some peppers and maybe some cheese and some scallions. A radish salad. That would be a nice starter. Well, now you've got that picture in your mind. Here's what you'll actually get. A plate of radishes. And nothing else. Maybe some drizzle garnishing it of some flavour or other. But that was it. The main thing was the only thing. The only thing on the plate. And that was all that was there. We're more used to the main thing being on the plate and surrounded by other things. I had a meal a while ago where there was steak on the plate. And the steak was wonderfully cooked. But there were other things in the plate. And they were superbly cooked too. And although the steak was really good, the other things were really good. And you couldn't bypass the other things. You know sometimes maybe you've gone out for a meal and the the meat has been cooked to perfection. And the... the, 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 The sauce has been there and it's been perfect as well. And then there's just a splodge of potatoes and very ordinary boiled vegetables. And you would nearly push them to the side and just get on with the main thing. Well, this passage is more like the other steak and nothing like the radish salad or the nice steak surrounded by inferior vegetables. This passage has a main point that is meaty and rich. And we will get to it and we will come back to it another week. But the things that surround the main point that are said in passing, I found quite incredible. And if we were going to do the passage justice, it would be wrong just to skip over those other things that are so tasty and rich and to focus only on the main thing. And so we're going to look at the four amazing things that Jesus says in passing. We're going to look at those mostly this morning. And we'll touch briefly on the main thing this morning and then another week we will come back to his main point. His main point is that his people would be united. But on the way to that, there are four amazing things that he just says in passing. Um, Here's the first one. You are prayed for. You are prayed for. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I remember the first time I read that and it struck me. I've been asked to speak on John chapter 17 at an English Bible camp in Hungary. And this was the first time I'd ever really spoken like this. And reading down through it. Uh, and being amazed at how Jesus prayed for his disciples, that they would grow in godliness, that they would be protected, uh, that 
all the things that Jesus prays for between verses 6 and 19. And all the things that he has in store for his disciples. And you're reading that thinking, oh wow, wouldn't it be great if he prayed like that for me? That was a thought that was in my mind and then I read verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me. In that moment it was as if I had this glimpse of Jesus saying the whole way down through the centuries to a scrawny 17-year-old sitting in a village in northern Hungary reading this and Jesus saying, I'm praying for you. Praying for you. One writer says, The eye of Jesus scans the centuries and presses to his loving heart all his true followers as if they had all been saved at this very moment. What a wonderful thing. On his way to the cross, it's not that he stops and he makes a special effort to think of his people and to pray for them. He's going to the cross to die for the sins of his people, to die for them, to pay the price for their sin. We are very much on his mind already. And so it is only natural that he would pray for us. And what a thing it is to know of Christ praying for us. In Luke uh, 22, and verse 32, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you. What a wonderful statement. And here it is here, in this passage, Jesus said, I pray for you. And the passages we read from Hebrews, Hebrews 4, told us that we have a high priest who knows what we need and who has been tested in every way and is able to sympathize. And we're to go to the throne of grace to receive help and grace in our time of need. And then we were told in Hebrews 7 that he is praying for us. He who knows all that we need, who knows our circumstances, who sympathizes with us, is praying for us. He prays for you. Do you need reminded of that? The different things that you've been facing, whatever those difficulties might be, those who have put their trust in Christ are prayed for by Christ. The King of Heaven is interested in your life. Maybe difficulties with health. It may be difficulties in your family circle. It may be memories of loss and grief and sorrow. It may be burdens that you're struggling with and and things that we're called to trust God with. Your Savior knows what you need and is praying for you. You're not in it on your own. The King of Heaven is praying for you. Secondly, you were expected. It was a slightly strange way of putting it, but hear what Jesus says. I pray also for those who will believe in me. There's great certainty there. Now, Jesus is going to the cross. The cross was designed by the Romans to put an end to all that the the crucified person had stood for. 
it was very often rebels were crucified and it was designed to be such a grotesquely painful death that nobody in their right mind would ever want to follow in the footsteps of the crucified person. That nobody would ever think of repeating or promoting that message because that's what happens to those who promote that message. And Jesus says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. He's confident of the spread of the good news of what he is going to do. He expects that people will believe. Here is the power of the gospel. And is it because Jesus is some sort of eternal optimist who always sees the bright side and and can even ignore the, the threat of the cross and still paint an optimistic picture? Is that it? No. This is the whole purpose. He came to bring mankind back to God. He came to go to the cross. He came so that people, so there would be a message. Sin has been paid for. The way is now open. Come to God. And you will not find judgment because God has come to bear judgment. That's what he came to do. And he expects there to be a message and he expects the message to spread and to be accepted and believed. And how could it be anything but that? We sang from Psalm 97 that speaks of the nations finding joy and praising God. Jesus already this evening has sung from those Psalms from Psalm 114 through to Psalm 118. That mighty Midget of a psalm, Psalm 117, that speaks of from all that dwell below the skies. Oh, let the Lord's praise now arise and let his glorious praise be sung in every land by every time. He's just sung that. He expects, believes, knows that this message will triumph on the cross. He's going to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the beginning of Psalm 22. But at the end of his time on the cross, he is going to say, It is finished, echoing the closing lines of Psalm 22. It is done. The previous bit, it would seem as if he's been thinking his way through the the 22nd Psalm. The previous section, just before the end, speaks of the Gentile nations turning and worshipping the Lord. He expects the gospel to triumph. It will not be thwarted. And how is it that you become part of of this triumph? He says, those who believe in me. Those who believe in me. And some of you have done just that. You've put your trust in this. And you see, when he says, believe in me, somebody might say, but I, I do believe in Jesus. But they don't mean what Jesus means here. Satan believes in Jesus. Satan doesn't go run around saying, oh, Jesus doesn't exist. He believes in him, in the facts about him. But the little Greek word here that means in, or translated in, means into. To, to throw yourself into something. To believe into it. To, to entrust yourself to it. And Jesus says, those who will believe in me, entrust themselves to me who will bank everything they've got on me. Some of you perhaps are considering this Jesus and you're finding out about him and you, you're finding out 
Is this all true? Is he worthy of my trust? And yes, he is. And let me urge you, plead with you, to entrust yourselves to him. To do that. Whatever you do, don't ignore him. Don't turn away from him. He's not an optional extra. He's not like the garnish on top of a salad that you can pick off and set to the side. Say, oh, well, I don't really need that bit. I've had the main course. I've had life. Jesus is just a little, little, little extra. No. He's eternal life. He's the whole point. And you believe into him. But here's this surprising thing of the, the certainty and the power of the gospel. And, and we need reminded of that in a world that has no time for the gospel, at least in the West. Well, here's Jesus in the bleakest moment going to the cross, confident that nothing will stop the spread of the gospel. And we might feel we're in a bleak moment in the Western world, with all the values that are rooted in God's Word are being ignored and overruled and rewritten. We might feel that it's bleak and discouraging, but here's Jesus saying to us, no, 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 you can expect the gospel to spread. Third amazing thing, surprising thing that we see here, you have a glorious role You have a glorious role. Verse uh, 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So, Jesus is making the main point at the end of the sentence. But don't miss what he says at the start. I have given them the glory you gave me. Jesus has given us something. What is it? It's glory. What does it mean? What glory is being spoken of here? It's not the glory that he spoke of in verses 1 to 5, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That's the glory he had as God. That's not something that the Father gave to the Son. And it's not something that the Son gives to us. He's not speaking about the glory that we will have in heaven. That will be fantastic and spectacular. We'll be made new internally, externally. The universe will be made new. But he's not speaking about that because that's not given by the Father to the Son. Do you see what he says? I have given them the glory that you gave me. And he says, I have given them it. So this is something that has already been given to the disciples and to us. Well, what was that glory that the Son was given by the Father? The glory that the Son was given by the Father was that of displaying, revealing who God is, making God known. It's as if the Son was commissioned by the Father to paint a portrait of what the Father was like for all mankind to see. In John chapter 1, Verse 18 we read, well verse 14 we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The job that the Father gave the Son to do was to make known what God the Father was like to paint a portrait. You see, we live in a world that has 
run away from God, has vandalized the image of God so that we have all sorts of distorted views of God. And God the Son came into the world to be a flesh and blood portrait of what God was like so that people could see. That was the great task the Son was given. And that's the great task that he hands on to us like passing on, we'll say the baton in a relay race or handing over the paintbrush and saying, you keep painting. What great dignity has been given to you. No matter your circumstances, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been given a role to display the glory of God to the world. And you can do that in your workplace, in your study place, in your home amongst your children, in your community amongst your neighbours, in any and every location, with any and every circumstance that God has brought into your life, hard, difficult, blessing, whatever it might be. We're to display what God is like. That's our glory. And we do it, let me just point out, in in at least two ways. First of all, there's by resting in Him. Jesus displayed the Father's trustworthiness by trusting the Father, by resting in Him. And if we have put our trust in Jesus... We can show the world around us that we have been brought into a living relationship with the true God and that we have him as our Father in heaven by letting the world see that we actually trust our Father in heaven. You know, we can talk about trusting God and we can say that we trust God. But if people around us hear us say that and see us anxious and worried and fretful about the future or about the present, what sort of portrait does it paint of God? That we can trust him with heaven, but we can't trust him with earth? So, let's be resting in him. And let's be reflecting him. Growing in likeness of him. We can do that in all our circumstances. We can do it in sickness. We can do it in work. We can do it in at home, we can grow more and more like our Father in heaven. One writer says this, What are earthly dignitaries compared with this? Military chiefs, ambassadors, judges, legislators, ministers of state, What are their glories compared with the glory God the Father gave the Son and the Son gives his people? Military chiefs, ambassadors, judges, legislators. What are their glories compared with ours? So you are given a glorious role. And fourthly, You are unimaginably loved. You're unimaginably loved. Verse 23. Have a look at verse 23. It starts off uh, with the, the end of Jesus finishing off the thought of verse 22. And then he says, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you 
have loved me. Again, maybe I'm just particularly slow, but I must have read that a lot of times in my life before it hit me. And I remember where I was and what I was reading when I saw what those words actually said. They're incredible. That they, God the Father would love us even as he loves his Son. Don Carson writes, There is something breathtakingly extravagant in this thought that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son. Think of it. The Father had one Son and He loved Him and loves Him with all this intensity of love that is imaginable and beyond what we can imagine. And Jesus, as it were, nonchalantly in passing, He's not asking that the Father would love us, but just in passing drops this truth bomb that says the Father loves you as much as he loves his Son. It's astonishing. It's utterly astonishing. We think of how much God the Father loves his Son. His Son who is perfect and who has never done anything out of place, never disappointed him in any way. He has a perfect love for him. And Jesus says to us here, it's as if he says, if my father, if there was only one human being on earth and you were that human being and you put your trust in me, my father would love you with the same passionate delight that he loves me. In fact, Jesus says, I will take all my father's dislike all my Father's judgment, in fact, all my judgment of your sin as well, I will take all of that on the cross so that you can have all of the love that I have enjoyed. Now, sometimes we make distinctions. Sometimes we say things like, uh, maybe about uh, an extended family member or somebody that we know, well, you know, I love them, but I don't really like them. (laughs) You know, we love them because we have to. But man, they're a real pain. So we don't like them. And sometimes I think we have a sneaking suspicion that God loves us because he has to. But truth be told, he doesn't actually like us. Have you ever felt that? If you were pushed as a Christian to say, I believe God likes me. You might find it easier to say, I believe God loves me. But would you say, I believe God likes me? The Bible doesn't make any such distinction. The father makes no distinction with his son. Well, you know, I love my son, but I don't really like him. Nonsense. That's not a biblical distinction. A cousin of mine was preaching on a theme similar to this recently, and I heard this phrase, and he said, Look, do you need to get up in the morning and go and look in the mirror? And say, God the Father loves me. Do you need to let that truth sink in? And we need to let it sink in because it it percolates through into so many different areas of our lives. It fuels our trust in Him. 
It helps us whenever circumstances are hard and difficult and the circumstances that we're in make us look at God and think, I'm not sure if he loves me. No, 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 no. This tells us that he loves us. That I can be sure of. I can't be sure of what all he's doing in my circumstances, but this I can be assured of. Because Jesus just states it in passing. Father. It's, well, obviously, it's almost as they say. You know, a thing that Jesus takes for granted. That you, Father, love them just as much as you love me. That's what it was all about. That these little parcels of dust that live on that little speck of a planet could know God. And be loved by God. He said, that's why I came. I didn't come for some sort of half-baked measure. I came that you would be this close to my Father. Do you grasp it? Do you grasp it? See these four amazing things then? You're prayed for. By God himself. By God the Son. You are part of the victorious, triumphant gospel. You are commissioned to a glorious purpose. And you are deeply loved. Those are the vegetables. And the garnish. But boy, what, what vegetables and garnish they are. Are they not spectacular? And just as we finish, we will not spend any length of time on it, but let me just start us onto a little sliver of the, the steak. The main point that Jesus is making here, the one vital thing that's in focus, he prays for unity. And you see, all of these four things, it's a perfectly crafted dish. These four things all feed into this and fuel it. The unity that Jesus prays for is a unity between God and his people. That, that we would be united in our purpose. He says in verse 21b, uh, May they also be in us. So we're to be connected with God. And then in verse 21a, in this, the start of it, that all of them may be one. We're to be connected to each other. We are to be about what Jesus is about. And we are to love the people that Jesus loves. Well, that all ties into what we've seen. Because if we're all commissioned to be painting portraits of what God is like. And taking this message to the world around us of what Jesus has done to bring us to God the Father. Then we all have the same great commission. And you see, all those points that we made previously, you, 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 those verses we looked at, those who will believe in me, that you've loved them, the you, the those, the them are plural. It's not just you as an individual. The person in front of you, the person beside you, is somebody that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for, knows them, cares for them, pleads for them. The person who's beside you is part of the same great triumph of the spread of the gospel. The person who's beside you has been commissioned to paint a portrait of what God is like. The person beside you in front of you is loved passionately, intensely and deeply by God the Father. Now does that not all feed our 
togetherness. As we grasp these four amazing facts, they'll help us and fuel us to be on mission as a church and united as a church. We're all being prayed for by Jesus. How could we not pray for each other then? We've all been commissioned by Jesus. We're all part of the same triumph that Jesus has worked. We're all richly and deeply loved by the Father. How could we not work together? How could we not pray for each other in our task of painting these portraits of what God is like? How could we not love and spur each other on? You see, it all flows into it. And we'll think more next time about what this unity is like. But Jesus uh, says, just in finishing, that this unity has an impact. And as these four things flow into our lives, as we grasp those four things and live confidently as individual Christians and as a group of Christians, then it's a bit like putting on a display in a shop window. The watching world sees it. And they see something in our lives that they think, that is admirable. Well, it's not us. It's because we're painting a flesh and blood portrait of God. They're being attracted to Him. And then they see something in our, in our church, in our fellowship with each other, that we care for each other. They go, that's lovely. You guys love each other. We say, yeah, but it's not just because we're really nice people. Because we're not really. We're all sinners. But we have been the recipients of immense love. And that changes us. And that makes us more loving. And we start to love each other. And Jesus says here. You see what he says? In verse 21. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unitedness to God and this portraying who God is and what God is like is attractive and it confirms the message of Jesus. And then in verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. We're like a window display for what God is like, for what it's like to be part of his family. As individuals, particularly as a church, We are God's window display. And so let's know that fueled by these incredible truths, we can live to fulfill this commission. And we can love and be united as Christ's people. Amen. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and what we've read here. We thank you for these incidental things that he says in passing like somebody just scattering nuggets of gold around them as they speak. Things that give us hope. Things that are richly encouraging. That we are prayed for by the one who knows exactly what we need and who is able to give us what we need. That we are part of the glorious, certain triumph of the gospel. 
that we have been gloriously commissioned to paint a portrait to our children, to our neighbours, to our work colleagues, to our family of what you're like. To be a portrait to those who come into this church wondering, who is this God? And Father, thank you for this astonishing truth that we who are rebels, who are disobedient children, could be forgiven and accepted and loved with an intensity of love that we can't begin to take in how long and high and wide and deep is your love for us in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that we would grasp these truths, that we would live them out as a church so that we are united and that we are therefore attractive, uh, that people are attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ and to know you as their Father in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.